I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, Exodus. Exodus is, in one sense, about someone whose life falls apart and who runs. What God says to Moses from a burning bush is more than just a call to Egypt. It's an incredible, staggering truth about who God is and who we are before him. Just before I fell asleep, this is a true story, I was reading about human sacrifice in pre-Columbian America. I, I don't have um, like a web browser on my phone, but I do have Wikipedia, so that's how I feed my digital addiction is Wikipedia rabbit holes, and somehow, I won't bore you with all the details, but I got into a page that was titled Human Sacrifice in Pre-Columbian America. The Aztecs, if you didn't know this about those guys... They uh, sacrificed like slaves and children and warriors that they captured from other tribes to their rain god, uh, Tlaloc, and to Quetzalcoatl, the god of things like wind and merchants and apparently arts and crafts. Uh, And then in 1521, the story goes that a Spanish conquistador claimed to have stumbled into the Aztec capital whilst exploring, and he witnessed the absolute barbarity, notorious now, of these human sacrifices, and he went home telling everyone all the gory details. I saw, he told everyone, a towering wooden rack displaying thousands of human skulls with board holes on either side to allow the skulls to kind of slide onto wooden poles that made these insane bone racks. And he illustrated, and these illustrators were passed kind of around in antiquity. Now, hundreds of years later, historians started to poo-poo these stories, Uh, saying that they were probably little more than propaganda manufactured to justify the murder and enslavement of the Aztec people and the siege of their capital until 2015, so not so long ago, and 2018 specifically, when archaeologists digging up the capital ruins discovered proof of widespread human sacrifice among the Aztecs, tens of thousands of victims, and none other than the very skull towers and racks that the conquistadors had described in their accounts. Can you believe it? They found the whole thing. But the Aztecs weren't the only ones who offered human sacrifices and who butchered, quite frankly, men and women and children in service to their gods. The ancient world in which the stories of the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, they unfold in a world of many gods, which are described by the Hebrew word Elohim. And tons of those gods, or Elohim, could only be appeased by the blood of humans. But then there are ancient records of one Elohim, unlike Moloch or the Elohim of the Moabites or the Egyptians, was very different from all other Elohim. Now, if you're not already in Exodus, from experience of knowing we'll be there tonight, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. It's easy to find, Genesis, then Exodus Now, we know, those of us with kind of any mileage on the Bible, we know that Exodus is in the Bible. We know it's at the beginning of the Bible, but we tend to read it as if it's its own unique movie because the story is so memorable. You've got Pharaoh and Moses and the plagues and the Red Sea. Sure, it's in the same Bible as, you know, Genesis and the Garden of Eden, the same Bible that has like Jonah getting swallowed by a big fish, big, big fish. But Exodus, in our minds, is often its own movie. And it has been. A movie several times. In fact, 1949 was a year that a lady called Dorothy Clark Wilson published a novel called The Prince of Egypt, based on Exodus, 
which was adapted into a major motion picture called The Ten Commandments, which is not as good a name at all, in 1956, starring none other than Charlton Heston as Moses, because when you think of Moses, you think of Charlton Heston. Now, I watched this thing as a kid more than once, not voluntarily. Um, it took two VHS tapes, two VHS tapes, and that's what I had already associated with, like, Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. So even seeing a double VHS package still puts me to sleep. Nightmares about the worst, until Titanic came around in 1997 and redeemed the double VHS tape. Yeah. Then DreamWorks released an animated Prince of Egypt adaptation. Wow, a lot of fans, a lot of fans of the Prince of Egypt. 1998, which was based on the Ten Commandments, which was based on the novel, The Prince of Egypt, which was based on the book of Exodus. And I should tell you guys, I saw The Prince of Egypt in theaters in 1998 because I was trying to impress a young lady who, you know, only went to Christian movies. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was probably aged out at the time, but I remember thinking it was pretty good. Haven't seen it since then, but in my memory, it was great. Now, clearly, there are people who see Exodus as its own movie, as it were. It stands out, it, and it is a unique story in a sense, but that story is not only situated within the greater library of writings that we call the Bible, it is designed by the author to consistently draw the reader back to Genesis in particular, because Genesis is the premier story in the Hebrew narrative about who God is, who we are, and how we got into this mess known as the human condition. The Israelites in Exodus are God's beloved people. They are blessed to fruition, but oppressed by an evil one. So Pharaoh in Exodus is an embodiment of Eden's serpent who works against God's blessing and enslaves God's people. These are all literary flashbacks. But then a savior, which is a literary flash forward to God's way of rescuing his people from the oppressor. How does God do that? He sends a deliverer. And that's where we left off last week, a baby who escapes genocide, who is miraculously beyond the reach of the serpent's enslavement. Sound familiar? Last week, we read about that baby who went on to be named Moses, but look what happens next. Exodus 2, beginning with verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up. So apparently, just like that, there's this drastic leap forward in time, and Moses is now an adult. One scene, one verse, actually. He's a baby. The next verse, he's grown up. He's a Hebrew man raised by Egyptian royalty. He lives among the oppressors of his own people. And then something crazy happens. Keep reading. Verse 11. He went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, again, if you're just watching The Prince of Egypt, this is another interesting scene propelling the narrative from one scene to another. It's just part of the story. But 
to someone steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, your mind would be transported backward to Genesis 4. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your, blo your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Moses has become, in the story, a new Cain. He attempts to exact his own sense of violent justice, but his secret is exposed and he is driven away into exile. Cain went east of Eden and began a new life there. Moses goes east of Egypt and begins a new life there. And then, long after Moses had run from his terrible secret, left the world of his upbringing behind and begun his new life, he marries a woman called Zephorah and they have a son. All seems well, new beginnings, all that. Until one day, Moses' old world calls back to him. Look at Exodus 2, verse 23. During that long period, while he's away in Midian, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So again, the author deliberately calls back to the story of Cain. Just as the bloodshed by injustice cried out to God, the anguish of the Israelites and their injustice now cries out to God. But that's not the only reference to Genesis. In chapter 18 of the Bible's first scroll, Genesis, God hears the outcry against two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord said, the outcry, there's that language again, against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, the Hebrew word that my Bible translates as outcry means a, a cry of distress. It's what it sounds like. Now, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities are kind of infamous for all kinds of sexual sin and debauchery, including a, this terrifying scene in which the people of the cities come together and attempt to gang rape angels. The terrible violence and depravity were, in the story, egregious to God, but it's not just a story about sexual sin or sexual predators. In fact, later on in Ezekiel, we learned that now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So the narrative thread, the literary motif on which the author of Exodus is drawing, is of injustice, and that injustice is an affront to God. Injustice itself as an outcry that calls up from the ground in the case of Cain and Abel and calls out from the mouths of the oppressed in the case of the Israelites from shed blood, from injustice, and it reaches the ears of the one and only creator God. And God hears it and remembers his promises. And not as in like, oh man, he just plumb forgot until he heard this weeping and wailing. But biblical scholar Terence Frothheim says that this does not refer to a jogging of the divine memory as if God had forgotten promises made. 
To remember is to be actively attentive to that which is remembered. It is a divine sense of obligation to a prior commitment, meaning God is acknowledging the promise that he made. And then once again, God remembering is intended to activate the reader's memory. Because in Genesis 8, we had already read, but God remembered Noah and the animals, all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. We'd already read in Sodom and Gomorrah, God remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Later in Genesis, the story of Rachel and Leah, God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, enabled her to conceive. God remembers Hagar when she is homeless and helpless with a new son. God remembers Jacob when Laban deceived him. And in all these stories, God remembers, he listens, and he acts. Now, in our story tonight, the story of Exodus, how does God act? What plan will he bring to motion? Let's keep reading. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a land or into a good and spacious land overflowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So as it was the case in so many stories across Genesis, God has heard the outcry of injustice, remembered his promises, and now he is acting. In Genesis, God reveals himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob by his proper personal name. So this is called the Tetragrammaton, which is Greek for four-letter word, not the kind that you're thinking, but this kind. And these are the Hebrew letters that make up the proper name of God in our, you know, Latin alphabet, Y-H-W-H. It means uh, I am who I am or just I am, which is where we get the title for God, the great I am. We pronounce the word Yahweh, but really this is just the best pronunciation most scholars agree on. We're not 100% sure, but that's where we're at right now. When I was a kid, everyone was calling God Jehovah which is weird, probably a lot to do with Indiana Jones and the temple of the, or the the last crusade, pardon me. 
Um, see, eventually uh, the Jewish people, in reverence to God's proper name, took to calling Yahweh Hashem, which means the name, or more often Adonai, which just means Lord, which is why most of your English Bibles translate Yahweh as just Lord in all caps. Jehovah is just the vowels from Adonai, or Lord, inserted into the consonants of the tetragrammaton, so Y-H-W-H with the vowels Adonai. Really, that's where it comes from. And since in Hebrew, Ys sound like Js and Ws sound like Vs, you get the English transliteration Jehovah. Weird, huh? Anyway, in Genesis, God reveals himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by his personal name. But as Genesis, in which the creator God is known as Yahweh, concludes, and then Exodus begins, suddenly, for some reason that we don't know as the reader upon reading and beginning the book, God is no longer referred to by his name, Yahweh, but instead he's referred to as a category title, the word Elohim, which is a Hebrew word that can and does refer to any number of spiritual beings, so angels, uh, other gods, like with a lowercase g, or here in Exodus, the one true God, all Elohim. Now, it's not wrong to refer to Yahweh as a spiritual being, because he is, but the subtext here in Exodus is that a distance has yawned open between Israel and Yahweh, and they have forgotten his name. In the ancient world and throughout the scriptures, a name is more than just like the semi-unique way a, a, a person's parents choose to identify them at birth. One's name in the scriptures is their character and their identity, which is why there's all sorts of language throughout the Bible and the, our worship songs that something to the effect of God's name is worthy or blessed is the name of the Lord or we will praise his name. We are talking about who God is at a fundamental level, not just what he's called. But in Exodus, Yahweh has somehow become just deity or spiritual being. And he is, that's true, but there seems to be a lapse in intimacy. It'd be like calling me human. It seems as if God's people have forgotten who he really is, his character, his identity, until one day a voice emanates from a burning bush. Now, stay with me for just a minute. Let's look closer at the specifics of the language, something lost in the translation here, because the literary genius is incredible. I'm going to show you guys some stuff on the side. Stay with me. Watch what happens as the story goes on in verse 11. Moses said to Elohim, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So when the narrator depicts the conversation from Moses to God, he uses the category title, Elohim. But then watch what happens in verse 12. And Yahweh said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So now, for the very first time in Exodus, Yahweh is back by name. When the narrator describes Yahweh's reply to Moses, he invokes God's personal name. The reader, that's you and me, is meant to infer just from the swapping back and forth of the title and the name that Moses remains at a distance. But even so, Yahweh is drawing near to Moses. But then keep reading. It gets even better. Watch this. Moses said to Elohim. So again, the narrator shifts to the title. Moses is still at a distance from God. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses asks, at this point, Elohim, point blank, uh, Sir, Mr. Deity, 
spiritual entity in the burning bush? Who are you? Who are you really, anyway? And then watch this, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Woo, freaking A. That really goes forward. All The narrator takes the proper name out of the background kind of inference, and God himself says to Moses, I am not just a God, I am the God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who hears the cries of the oppressed and remembers his promises and does something about it. That is who I am forever and ever, and you can tell everyone else the same thing. This is kind of a real mic drop moment for God, because when God invokes his own name, he's doing more than just jogging Moses' memory. Like, oh, you forgot? No big deal. Here's my name. He's saying, listen, all the stories you have heard about me are true, that I remembered Abraham, that I remembered Rachel and Leah and Hagar and Jacob, that I hear the spilled blood of injustice, that the cries of the oppressed reach me in heaven, and I do something about it. I am who I am, Yahweh, forever and ever. Tell them that. Well, this is serious stuff. And don't forget, it's coming from a fire. So there's that. It probably added to the, you know, the pageantry of the whole thing. But that's not the only thing happening here. Remember what prompted the exchange in the first place. Look back at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So before Moses asks God, Who are you? He asks God a different question. Who am I? Now, before we end tonight, I'm going to give you guys a little inside baseball and a couple of uh, terrifically embarrassing stories. Now, most of you guys know that our church is planted by Bridgetown Church in Portland. We maintain this great voluntarily close relationship all these years later. They're doing Exodus. We're doing Exodus. We share teaching series when we like um, resources. And heck, we even trade teachers back and forth. So my friend Tyler, who's a pastor at Bridgetown, asked if we wanted to join them in Exodus. I said that we did. Now, when we share a series like this across the last few years, sometimes we just share the basic map and we each go and do things our own way as is appropriate for the season of our church. And sometimes we share the path with a little more specificity. It just kind of depends. So this week in my office, I had already done most of the work on this teaching without really knowing what Bridgetown was up to. And then I looked at Tyler's notes and seeing what he did with this text. Um, and he had used a few personal stories. And I sort of concluded that that's awesome. I think I'll do something different. I'm not against personal stories, but they didn't really fit in my plan. And then almost immediately, I felt as if God was like, wait a second, I want you to say this. And I said, uh, well, yeah, God, but to make that point, I would have to tell some really embarrassing stories about myself, and that's rarely any fun. So thank you. I'll pursue another direction. I appreciate your suggestion. And then I stood up, this is a real story, I stood up from my desk, I went to make myself a cup of coffee, and I sat in silence waiting for the cup to fill, and I felt as if, like, God's finger was on my shoulder, and he pressed the point, because he does that to me, and he's like, ahem, kind of thing, and I was like, all right! So I went back upstairs, and I kept writing. So, here we go, here's the deep water. When I was a little boy, 
I don't remember how old, honestly. I was thumbing through a magazine in my parents' bedroom, uh, and I stumbled upon an ad for lotion or body wash or some such thing. The ad depicted, as these ads often do, a nude woman running a hand down her leg as if to say, wow, this lotion makes my skin so soft. And the image actually wasn't salacious at all. In fact, the woman was as covered as she would have been if she were clothed. The nudity was kind of inferred. But I remember that I fixated on the image. I tore the page from the magazine. I cut the woman from the rest of the paper, and I hid the scrap somewhere in my room underneath action figures and Nintendo cartridges until eventually I forgot it was even there. Then my mom found the clipping one afternoon while she was cleaning, and she took me aside, and she asked me very sternly, I remember, who did this? Because whoever did this is in very big trouble. And I was frozen. I said I didn't know who did it. And she asked again. I held my ground, no idea, and that was that. But there was a profound sense of embarrassment, of shame. And I wondered in that moment, like, why, why did I do that? Am, am I gross? What's wrong with me? All that stuff. Now, decades later, during a, a particularly painful season of my life, I turned, like so many others before me, to pornography as a drug to distract me from the darkness of my interior world. And then I was grieved by my sin. So, uh, prompted by the Holy Spirit, I went to my wife, Abby, one night to confess what I had done, plead for her forgiveness, which is just, you know, the first step among many in a complicated journey of repentance and healing. So, the person that I love most in the world, my best friend, who I, I uh, admire the most in the world, I have to now say this terrible, humiliating thing. We only had one kid back then, our son Beck, and he was a baby at the time. And I mentioned that because as I confessed this shameful thing spilling out of me. I didn't have a plan. I didn't prepare a speech. And I was scared and embarrassed. And without any premeditation, I remember I told Abby, I failed you and I failed Beck. And now Abby, who, you know, she was who I knew her to be and she was gracious and forgiving. But I remember when I said that thing about our son, she looked at me sort of confused and she said, oh, how, how did you fail Beck? And it was a reasonable question because he could barely talk, let alone comprehend anything that was going on. But I had this profound sense that I just wasn't who I wanted to be as a husband or a father. And, that, and it was that same feeling that I had all those years ago when I was a little boy. And it was, it was true, don't get me wrong, that I wasn't who I wanted to be. I had sinned. I was I was not the victim. I was the victimizer. I had objectified people made in God's image, and I condoned the, and, and participated in the evils of an industry built on abuse and human trafficking, and I betrayed the trust of my wife and family. But I, I realized that that moment of shame from all those years ago, its hooks were still in me. And here's another one. When I was nine years old, I got from my fourth grade teacher, Miss Clanton. This is her real name, too, not uh, obscuring any of the details. I don't know where she is right now. I doubt she'll hear this. My mom was a teacher. She was on the uh, District Board of Education, so education is a huge you know, value for her. My dad was a blue-collar guy. He worked at a paper mill for decades. And they both, because one was an educator and one was a hard worker, they insisted that their kids work very hard and make good grades. And I had been uh, you know, a straight-A student for the first few years of grade school. It's not that big a deal. But then... In fourth grade, I made a B. Yeah, that's right. That's what they said. <laughs> and then a little while later, I made a C. 
It was a 79, which is just below the threshold of a B. Now, my parents would have none of this. They were ticked. By their logic, if you can get good grades, then why aren't you getting good grades? And they figured it must be a work ethic thing or a disobedience thing, one of the two or both. And it was some of that, I'll be honest. Um, but I was also kind of battling against my inability to focus, which no one quite understood at the time, least of all me. And I was battling against Miss Clanton. Miss Clanton and I did not get along. She didn't like me, and I didn't like her, and it was obvious to everyone. And this is not a whoa, whoa is me kind of thing. It's like I've learned over time some teachers don't like certain kids, and this teacher did not like me. <laughs> So, one afternoon in Miss Clinton's class, after months and months of not getting along, I was arguing with a classmate who then told Mrs. Clanton that I was being unreasonable. And Miss Clanton said to my classmate in front of the fourth grade, well, Josh is just a very selfish person and he only cares about himself. And in that moment, those words like terrified me. They pierced me and I felt as if I knew that they were true, and I just, I knew it, and the only thing I could do to somehow undo this terrible truth about me was to blurt out three words that came immediately to my mind as if loosed from the injury itself, and I sobbed in front of everyone, and I cried out, I hate myself, and it was the first time I ever thought that, and it was the first time I ever said it. But it wasn't the last time for either. And then I hobbled back into the class the next morning, put a smile on my face, hoped everything, everyone would forget the, the ugly episode from the day before. But it was still in me somewhere. So I ran until I couldn't. Like I'd left that exchange with my mom over the magazine clipping, embarrassed and scared and hoping that the clipping and its memory would vanish. But it was still in me somewhere. So... I ran until I couldn't. Moses grew up in Egypt, adopted into the very family oppressing his own people. He grows up in Pharaoh's household as all the other Israelites stack bricks right outside his door under the whips of the Egyptians. And then one day when he's a man, as if it's only occurred to him for the very first time, he steps outside and sees it all really sees it, and something in him gets activated. Something pierces him, and he acts on his impulse, kills an Egyptian, and he tries to hide it. But when Moses tries to wander back into life, the thing he'd hidden follows him. So he runs until he can't. Look at this again. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So God calls out to Moses by name, Moses, Moses, you have been running. But I see you. All this in just God saying Moses' name. I see you. I know who you are. I know that you've been hiding. I know you. And because of that, Moses hides and is afraid to look at God. Now, if you remember nothing else from tonight, remember this. Look, look up. Pay attention for just a minute. Look at this from Exodus 3. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? 
I can't bring Israel out of Egypt. I'm the one who enjoyed Pharaoh's table as my people suffered. I am a traitor by birth. I'm the one who, when I did try to do something, I killed someone and hid it. Everyone found out. And because of what I did, I had no home among my own people or my adopted family. And I have been running and hiding for years. So who the heck am I that I should be the one to go to Pharaoh and bring my people out of Egypt? Now, listen, this is it. How does God answer? God said, I will be with you. You are beloved of God. You are known by God. You are unforsaken by God. The God who sees and remembers, I am as good as you have heard, and I will go with you. And then, through you, I am going to do something incredible. He has no idea how incredible. The story that we're still telling tonight, that is how Yahweh does it. God wanted to set Israel free from oppression. He could have just zapped every Egyptian dead, and then created like a, a miraculous rainbow bridge out of Egypt and into the promised land. And really, he could have done that, and he's done, frankly, crazier things than that in the Scriptures. But that's not how God does redemption. First, he goes into the place where a broken man was hiding, tells that broken man, I see you, I know you, I will be with you. Now, together, let's go put things right. Redemption for the broken man... Redemption for the man who blew it. Redemption for the man in hiding. Redemption for the oppressed, those crying out to God, waiting for his promise to be fulfilled. And one through the other when he could have done it all by himself. And even though everyone forgot God's name, forgot who God really is, God is going to remind everyone in the most spectacular way imaginable and one realizes that in a pantheon of ancient gods to lay claim to supremacy over the cosmos, the thing that identifies the one true creator God to make him unique among all gods is that he is the one and only God who finds us in our brokenness and goes with us into our destiny and calling. This is so central to Yahweh's identity that Jesus of Nazareth who the scriptures describe as the exact representation of Yahweh's very being. Jesus is also known by the great and glorious name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. It's his name. It's his character, his identity. So, ask yourself, what moment, what word, what person, what failure pierced you on your, your harrowing journey of life? Maybe when you were just a little girl or when you were a young man, these scars wrought by moments, seemingly innocuous, forgotten by others, that sent some snaking crack up the foundation of who you are. Maybe there's something about your story, your family, the places you've been that feel to you like a stain in need of disguising. Or did someone fail to protect you? Did someone leave? Did someone take something from you? Did, did you take something from someone else? 
were and are you frozen in your shame? Is part of you still frozen in that moment, in that place? Did part of you go away to hide? Does part of you go on hiding even still? Across the years between that little boy with the magazine clipping or that nine-year-old weeping in front of his classmates, God kept finding me, not just once, but again and again and again. When one becomes uh, convinced, wholly, willfully convinced that they are on some level fundamentally loathsome, this adjacent fear permeates the terrible knowledge of his own awfulness, and I lived with the distant dread that those I love, when they come close, will see me for who I am and leave, creating in me a maddening insecurity that would allow me neither self-love, nor love from others, nor love from God. And I worked for years to let God show me otherwise, and He did, and He has. But the shadow... The shadow has a way of lingering. In May, before I left for sabbatical, I spent a day in silence and solitude to prepare for whatever it was that God wanted to show me during my time away. And it wasn't like some, you know, cathartic, weepy time of repentance or anything, but I, as I sat before God and prayed through confession and repentance, it's just an ordinary part of my prayer rhythm, I felt as if God said to me, still, somewhere in you, you fret that I will leave you if you fail me. And that was news to me. And I wrote these words in my journal that morning, just to continue with this motif of embarrassing myself. But here's a diary entry. <laughs> I wrote, the Lord says, stop framing your confession within the fear of God leaving. It allows me to hide myself from his call over my life, it is not a matter of God staying or going, but of my going with God where he leads. When God finds Moses, he doesn't assuage his guilt. He doesn't pat him on the head and sit down with him in Midian and say, Oh, poor baby, you've had it so hard. Let's stay here. He calls Moses out of hiding to a purpose. In spite of his failure and in defiance of his shame, and so you, the church that I love, my brothers and sisters, wherever it is you go to hide, whatever part of you is hidden away from God and others, when God finds you in a place you hoped he never would, and he lays bare the darkest of all your secret shame, the things of which you are most afraid, and you shiver before the almighty creator known by prophets and sages as the God who sees and remembers and your voice trembling, every hidden thing exposed, you ask, who am I to crawl up out of this shadowy place, naked as I am, and into the light? And God will answer then as he has answered before. I'll go with you. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to lead us out of darkness and into light. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.